0: on May 21st, 1922, a famous New York preacher stood in his pulpit, a Baptist that was pastoring a Presbyterian church, stood in his pulpit to preach perhaps one of the most famous sermons in the entire 20th century. He entitled the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? In this particular sermon, he sought to argue that the fundamentalists were taking things a little too far, being a little too literal with the Bible. And in this, he sought to play down some of the rhetoric that he was hearing throughout the world of Christianity. After this particular sermon, one of the so-called fundamentalists responded in a sermon he preached later that summer entitled, Shall Unbelief Win? What these two men were dueling about, and what was going on in the 1920s and 30s here in America, which had already spread throughout Europe, was theological liberalism. These men, known as the modernist, as Fosdick was, sought to try to modernize the church to make it more palatable to the everyday man. He felt like the Bible and the old doctrines of the church were just uh, not in line with uh, what man needed in the turn of the new century. Fundamentalists like McCartney, as well as men like J. Gretchen Machen, argued rather that the Bible was the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. What was it that they were arguing about? What was so central to it? Well, friend, it's what we're going to think about this morning. It was the virgin birth. You see, men like Fosdick had no room in their theology for such a miracle as the as the virgin birth. They, they had no room for a Jesus who could walk on water, who could multiply bread and fish. Ultimately, what they were battling over wasn't merely the virgin birth, but over the Bible. Was the Bible God's word, or was it man's word about God? This particular doctrine was at the center of even his sermon that day. Here from Fosdick himself and from his sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Wins, at one point in the sermon, as he gets to the sort of crescendo point in it, he says this, it is interesting to note where the fundamentalists are driving in their stakes to mark out the deadline of doctrine around the church, around which no one is to pass except on terms of agreement. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles, Permanently the virgin birth of our Lord. That we must believe in a special theory of inspiration that the original documents of Scripture, which of course no long possessed, were inherently dictated to men as a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer. That we must believe in the special theory of atonement that the blood of our Lord Jesus shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcoming for returning sinners. Now we must believe in the second coming of the Lord upon the clouds in the heaven to set up a millennium here as the only way to which God can bring history to a worthy end. Such are some of the stakes, he says, which are being driven to mark a deadly doctrine around the church. It's interesting, isn't it, as you hear some of those that he was seeking to brush aside the virgin birth, Substitutionary atonement, verbal plenary inspiration of scripture, the things that we all sang about this morning were the things that they saw for the modern man as outdated and unuseful. A man by the name of J. Gretchen Machen, who would ultimately go on to start the Westminster Theological Seminary there in Philadelphia, he would write a book in response to Fosdick and all of the false teaching that was going on, and he'd entitled it On the Virgin Birth. This is what he says in response. Listen carefully, because this is important. A, Christi- a Christianity dependent on the so-called historic Jesus is gradually giving place to a Christianity that is dependent upon no Jesus at all. A Christianity that is content to use the ethical and religious ideas contained in the Gospels without settling the question whether the person who is said to have initiated these ideas ever really walked upon the earth. He goes on. One thing is clear. Even if the belief in the virgin birth is not necessary to every Christian... It certainly is necessary to Christianity. In other words, what Machen argued was if you do not believe in the virgin birth, you are not a Christian. If you do not affirm this miracle that we're thinking about this morning. Friends, this is what gave rise to even our own confession of faith in 1925. In the same years that this debate is going on, Southern Baptists resolved to make clear that we believe the Bible is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God, and that Jesus Christ was a real human being. He was the eternal Son of God who clothed himself forever in human flesh that he might redeem a people for his own possession. And what Machen and the rest of the so-called fundamentalists made clear which is expressed in our own confession, is that you must believe if you desire to be saved. The point is clear for us this morning in our minds, that there is no salvation from sin apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you cannot believe in the miracle of the virgin birth, then surely you cannot believe in a substitutionary atonement. And you especially have no room for an empty tomb. You see, each and every one of these aspects of Jesus' life are central to salvation. And I hope to prove that to you this morning. Last week as we began this uh, three-part series, thinking about Jesus Christ in our Advent season. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means to come. Jesus is coming uh, what the Greeks would say was the parousia of Christ, the coming of Christ. And, you know, so often we talk about the second parousia, the second coming of Christ. But here in the Christmas season, we're thinking particularly about the Son of God. And we, we learned last week that Jesus was a legitimate Israelite, he was a descendant of Abraham. Through both his mother and his adoptive father, he is an Israelite. He is fully blooded Israelite. And secondly, we saw that his father and his mother were descendants of King David. And while David's line had begun to splinter out and it was watered down, we see that there was a remnant that God had preserved from David's line because David was promised there was coming a king who would sit on that throne forever. And we learned that he was the promised son who had come to save a people for his own glory. And this morning, we're going to consider in verses 18 through 25 of Matthew chapter 1, where there Matthew describes Jesus' conception, his birth, and names and its significance. So I invite you to turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. It's found on page 807 in the Black Pew Bibles invite you to grab that Bible, open to 807, look for the big number one and the little tiny number 18, and we're going to consider just these few verses this morning in our time together. Matthew chapter 1. This is what Matthew writes. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus is truly God and truly man. The Jesus that was just described in this text, the one who was born approximately 2,029 or so years ago, he was a real human being. He was truly human. 100% human. He was born of a woman, just like everyone in this room was born of a woman. But he was also truly God. He was truly God. He was 100% God. He is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who has eternally existed, who did not have a beginning, and who does not have an end. And in the incarnation of Christ, the eternal Son of God was forever united with His own creation, humanity, so that this Christ child could save a people for God, for his Father. And so this morning, I want us to, to consider that in our time together that we would have saving knowledge of the divine Son of God. That you and I would come to saving knowledge of this divine Son. Because you see, you can know this Jesus and not be saved. There was men and women who walked the streets, some who were even in his inner circle, who knew him, who knew he was real, that he was flesh and blood, but yet did not believe that he was truly God. Consider even the text this morning and how it unfolds before us. Matthew is telling us Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. And Luke, the gospel writer Luke that we considered last year, uh, he wrote his narrative uh, concerning the birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective as he interviewed Mary and, and hey, Mary, what was it like? Uh, what happened? Tell me the circumstances. Here, Matthew, writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, is telling the story from Joseph's perspective. What would it have been like? We're told in the text that Joseph was betrothed, you know an old English word that simply means engaged, But a lot more than engagement, right? Essentially, it was they were married, but they had not consummated the marriage yet. Because you see in the text that he resolved to divorce her quietly. We're told that Joseph here was a just and a righteous man. He was a God-fear. He loved the Lord. And he was engaged to this young woman named Mary, a descendant from David from the same tribe there in Judah. Uh, they were going to be married and live a happy life. And, and just like everyone who's there preparing for that, that final day, that wedding day, Joseph was caught off guard. Surely in Joseph's mind, he didn't have room for a virgin birth, right? You think about what that statement is an oxymoron. Virgin birth, that's impossible, right? So, so he doesn't have in his mind, hmm, I this happened to happen. No, he thinks his, his, his wife, his soon-to-be wife, has cheated on him. That's the only way this has kind of happened. He knew he hadn't been with her, so some other man had. And so so he knows that the only thing that can result from this is divorce. She's committed adultery. Now, of course, we all know what in the Old Testament was the penalty for adultery, was death. She should have been stoned to death. And so he's considering what should I do with this news, but he knew he had to divorce her. This was particularly brought shame upon him and upon her. But notice even we are told that he resolved to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to ridicule her. He didn't want to uh, bring shame upon her. And so you see a sense of Joseph's own love that would have no doubt been expressed in the Christ child. But of course as Joseph is thinking of these things, he's like, what am I going to do? What a horrible deal. I love this woman and she clearly has had this affair and and what am I going to do? But God interrupts Joseph and his plans to divorce his wife. He says, don't do that, Joseph. Don't do that. No, 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 no. What's in her isn't from another man. It's from God. From the Holy Spirit, we are told. And, of course, Joseph is is surprised by this. This is all unknown. This is a miracle. More than that, the the angel tells Joseph, hey, and by the way, this is a special gift from God. His name is. Is to be named Jesus, which means that Yahweh saves. This particular child that is from the Holy Spirit, that has been conceived in your wife, well, he is going to be raised up, and he is going to deliver God's people. He's going to assume the throne of King David, and he will forever lead the people of God in righteousness and justice. Oh, and one last thing before I go. Not only is this child the long-awaited anointed one, this child is God. Emmanuel will be his name, which means that God is with us. And Joseph doesn't just sort of brush the whole thing off, think, wow, I had something funny to eat tonight. I had a strange hallucination tonight. This angel came and talked to me. No, we're told he did everything the angel commanded him. You see, this is a wonderful story that is a true historical story. But, I mean, in Joseph's shoes, imagine if you were in that position. What would you have done? How would you have responded? How would you have even responded to this angel as he declares these things about this child that your wife now will bear? Friends, this passage this morning, I believe, answers for us three big questions. Of course, this comes at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that stretches for 28 chapters. We're just going to consider these three weeks of it. So there's much more of the story to come. Let me just commend you to keep reading. You know, don't stop. Next week when we conclude, don't don't just end there. Maybe start the new year right here in Matthew. We've got you through the first couple verses, and you can carry it on in through January and reading more about this Jesus who has come well, there's three big questions about Jesus that this text answers. Number one, it tells us how Jesus came, right? How did Jesus come? What were the circumstances of it? Well, let's consider what it means. And secondly, we, the next question is, who is Jesus, right? Who is he? Who is this, this child that is born in Bethlehem? So we learn a bit of Jesus' identity in this text. And then lastly, what does it all mean, Of course, this isn't just telling us historic detail. Matthew has compiled this narrative in order to teach us what it all means. What does the coming of Christ mean for the world, for the people of God, for us? What does this all mean? What's the purpose of it all? Number one, how did Jesus come? We see a number of things in the text. First, we see that Jesus came to a virgin mother, Verse 18 makes clear that, that Mary was a virgin. She had not had any relationships with any men. Now, of course, we, we don't believe in immaculate uh, conception, as the Roman Catholics teach. This is a foreign to the text. But rather, we believe that she was a righteous woman, chosen especially by God for this. One who feared, if you want to read more about her thoughts, again, you can turn to Luke chapter 1 and 2. And there you'll see Mary's thoughts as she thought about the Christ. Before they came together, we, we're told in verse 19, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so we, we understand that Jesus came to a virgin mother. We, this is part of the affirmation of our confession of faith. This is what we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, both 325 and 381. What we affirmed in our statement of faith. Uh, borrowed from the New Hampshire Confession in 1833. This is what Christians historically have believed. But it's not so much her virginity that we focus on, but rather the conception that he was born from God, that Jesus, his body was formed by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Secondly, we see that he came to an adoptive father. Joseph, in this text, is essentially, legally adopting Jesus as his own. We don't know much about Joseph. In fact, he will fade in the narrative right out of these very few chapters. We don't hear about him. We we know that perhaps um, what we can compile, that he died at some point in Jesus' life, uh, perhaps when he was a teenager uh, or or older, um, and he wasn't a part of his life. But we find in this text that he is the adoptive father. This is why the text emphasizes For example, in verse 20, Joseph, son of David. That would have been of no real theological significance unless Joseph legally adopts Jesus as his son. So now, Jesus has all the rights and privileges of not only being a child of Mary, but also an adoptive son or so-called son of Joseph, as Luke will use that phrase often. He came to an adoptive father. And we've mentioned a bit about this father, isn't he? He was a righteous man. Even in his actions to try to protect his wife Mary and her honor, resolving to divorce her quietly. Even in the fact that he knew he had to divorce her. He couldn't remain married to this adulterous woman of what he thought. And even lastly, we see in his obedience, he did what the angel commanded him. Joseph was a godly man and of course would have led his son Jesus as he was reared in this home to be a godly man as well. We also see in the text that Jesus came to a fallen world. Jesus didn't come to a, a silent night. Many theologians affirm that that night wasn't a silent night. I, I don't know about you, but when babies are born, they're, they're quite loud. And they do tend to scream a lot. I think it's a sense of a picture of the brokenness. Remember the curse that was laid on Eve in Genesis chapter 3? That through pain of childbearing? We see the, the truth that Christ came in the midst of brokenness. At God's appointed time, at the right time, Paul says, The Christ child was born. He didn't come in palaces. He didn't come with power and glory. He came humbly in a fallen and broken world to save a people from their sins, we are told. To save his people from their sins. I like how David Platt helpfully writes in his sermon on this text. He says this, Part of the purpose of the virgin birth of Jesus is to show us that salvation does not come from man, but from God. Salvation is wholly the work of a supernatural God, not the work of natural man. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves from our sins, which is evident even in the way in which Jesus enters the world. The baby born in Bethlehem was one who was and is the center of all human history. He came to a fallen world, to a virgin mother, to an adoptive father, in order to rescue a people for God's glory. But who was this Jesus? W- was this his creation? Was, was this his first day? Was, is this his, you know whatever day on the calendar that was? Interestingly enough, as, as Christians historically didn't have a date on the calendar, wasn't a lot of emphasis here, not that they didn't emphasize the incarnation, they didn't emphasize a particular date, because they didn't want to confuse people. They didn't want people to think that we're celebrating Jesus' birthday on December 25th. That's not what we're doing. No, you see, what we learn in the text is that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. So first, that he's truly human. And to be clear in the text, look, look at the words that are used. Verse 20, but as, the, as he considered that, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of Mary, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? Why shouldn't Joseph fear? Why, why should he disp- dispel all the fears that she has had an affair? Why? For that which is conceived in her is from, source, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit created This child in the womb of Mary. So his humanity has a beginning, but his divinity is eternal. What we have is the uniting together of God and man forever in the incarnation. And the conception of how this happened wasn't in a laboratory, but was in the womb of Mary by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. But do not miss the truth that Jesus was a human being. He is the Son of Man. He is the promised child that Eve received centuries earlier. That there would come from woman, from a woman, a child who would crush the head of the serpent who would finally defeat that wicked snake who had led humanity into rebellion against God. And by being a human, Jesus is the second Adam. This is what the Apostle Paul argues in the book of Romans and Galatians, that he is our new representative. Imagine, if you will, uh, and this is, this is an illustration, so be careful here, all right? Um, so imagine for a moment that you know, humanity's all gathered together, all, all the whole lot of us, and you know, we, we have an election and we say, Adam, we want you to go and represent us as humanity. And so Adam says, Yes, I'll go do it. And so he goes and does it, and he miserably fails at it, doesn't he? Right? He he advocates his role as head of the home to his wife, and Eve leads the family into sin. And so this first woman, who is the companion to Adam, leaves, leads us all into sin. And now every one of us have inherited sin from our father, from our mother, this inherited sin. But not the Christ child. This second Adam, who is born of woman, but that is not a descendant of humanity, represents us as the second Adam. But this Adam's different. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeds. Where the first Adam lived life however he wanted to live, he kind of did things his own way. Oh, we can't eat of that? That's all right. I think I should eat because I know better than you, God. The second Adam, his name is Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He did everything his father told him to do, and he died in the place of all of the descendants of the first Adam. This is who the Christ is. But more than that, as being a human, as Paul would argue in in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus clothed himself or robed himself in human flesh by becoming a servant so that he could identify with us. In other words, we needed a representative to go die in our place. And who better than the eternal Son of God? And he went and he died the death that we deserve. You see, we need Jesus to be fully human. We need him to be a true human being. Because if he's not a true human being, then he did not make substitute for our sin. He can't be our substitute. It had to be a human. And it was. But also, friend, by being a human, he got hungry, we are told. He got tired. His muscles ached. You know, he can identify with you, friend. He knows what it's like teenagers to go through puberty. He knows how difficult it is. Don't, don't, don't think that he didn't feel pain. When they cut him, he bled and it hurt. You know, he's not hanging on the cross. Just, oh, this, isn't a, this is no big deal. No, he weeped in agony. Friend, no clearer picture than outside the tomb of Lazarus. He's the God over death. But what is he doing? He's weeping. The loss of a friend. Friend, he knows your sorrows. He knows your sufferings. He knows how frustrating it is to have this flesh. He knows how, limitate, how limiting it is. He had to sleep and eat just like every one of us. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have a God Who can sympathize with us, as the author of Hebrews writes? He knows what it's like to live in a fallen world, in the brokenness around us, yet without sin. Oh, what a wonderful truth to know that Jesus is truly human. But, as verse 23 reveals, he is also the Son of God. He is truly divine. In a sort of turn of events, a sort of unexpected Joseph's hearing, oh, we're gonna have a baby. Okay, God create okay, this is from God, okay. I think I'm good. I think I'm all right now. I think I can do this. All right. Oh, oh, by the way, before I leave, this is to fulfill Isaiah 7. You remember hearing that read in the temple? You remember that at the synagogue meetings? Remember how the priest would stand up and read about During the king, during the reign of King Ahaz, when he was rebelling against God and wanting a sign from God, but he's like, I don't really need a sign from God. I'm just gonna do whatever I want. And God's like, I'm gonna give you a sign, whether or not you want the sign or not. And here's the sign. The sign is gonna be a woman is gonna give birth. But this woman is special, she's a virgin. And Ahaz is like, whatever. I don't that's that's I'm gonna do it. And eventually he's swept away and they all go into exile. But Isaiah prophesied about a time in the future where a child would be born to a virgin mother and his name would be called Emmanuel. And Matthew interprets it for us, right? For everybody, all the slow ones in the room, we're like, I don't know what Emmanuel means. We just sang it this morning. Who is Emmanuel? Is it, did it begin with an I or an E? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out still as well. Is it Emmanuel with an E or Emmanuel with an I? Who is he? Well, he's God with us. The Elohim has come. Our God is drawn near. And so this Jesus is not merely a human being. He's not half human, half God. No, he's fully God, truly God, and truly man. He is 100% God and 100% man. And so while, the, the, while Jesus suffered, while Jesus was hungry, While Jesus was thirsty, while Jesus was tired, He was still the omniscient one, the omnipotent one. He was still the all-knowing, the all-powerful God. And we see that on display when He walks on water and when He takes a few loaves and a couple fish and He feeds thousands of people. We see that He is more than you and I. He is truly God. And so we reject the heresy of Marcion and the Arians who would say that Jesus is not God. This is where we begin to part ways with so many other so-called Christian denominations, which are actually occults, that seek to teach that Jesus is merely a human. No, he is more than that. He is Emmanuel. He is God in flesh. Jesus is fully divine. And friends, isn't it wonderful to know that the incarnation, as we consider this, is the most extraordinary miracle in the whole Bible? I mean, there's tons of miracles in our Bibles, healings of lepers, children being raised back to life, but the incarnation is the greatest miracle the world has ever known. And it is a miracle, friend. We all have to just sort of brush it aside and say, yes, of course I believe that a virgin can give birth. What? You believe that? What science book have you been reading? What You know, isn't it interesting that even in our scientific age when we you know, grow embryos and petri dishes, how this becomes all the more radical? That, that God would choose this medium in order to draw near. I mean, he could have sent an angel to do the job, perhaps, uh, tell us all we're a bunch of sinners and we need to follow God. No, no, he chose this means. This was God's plan, this miracle. Friend, don't discount it any more than that. It should require a bit of faith in your heart to believe this is true, that God would be wed together in this way. But it is a profound mystery then, isn't it? And you know, as you're sitting there, you're thinking, how is this possible? I'm just trying to figure this all out. Friend, let me just encourage you to believe that this happened. This truly happened. Believe Matthew. Believe his eyewitness account. Believe the testimony of Joseph and Mary that this is from God. Believe that they did not have any relationship before this. And he did not know his wife, we were told, until after Jesus was born. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. It is here in the thing. Jim Packer has a way with words. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas. This thing that happened that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. In other words, you don't get any better than Christmas. The incarnation of Christ is the pinnacle it is the glorious point in which we realize that our God has not abandoned us. He cast our first parents from the garden, but he promised that he would come again and rescue us, and he has. And that's why we leads us to this final question. What does all this mean? What does all this mean? A big whooping deal that, Je- that Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? Has it changed my life? Well, number one, we see that God is the one who made all things. The words that is used here, conceived, is the idea of Genesis, created. In other words, this is God's plan. So to be clear, so we don't confuse anybody, the second person of the Trinity has eternally existed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is eternal. He's an eternal being. But in the incarnation, he is wed together with a human flesh. And that body is perpetual forever. His resurrected body is an eternal body. And there will be no point in in, in the future where they're severed. This is a, a marriage that is eternal. We see that God is the one behind this. But also we see that God is faithful, isn't he? This means that God is faithful. As we considered last week, that God keeps his promises. Even in the text that the angel reads and that Matthew provides for us of Isaiah chapter 7, hundreds of years earlier, God promised that he would send this Emmanuel, this Christ child born of the virgin. He promised. Even in Isaiah chapter 9, we learned about this one who would come and save. God is faithful to his promises. Brother, sister, if you're struggling right now in doubt, anxiety, and fear, look to the incarnation to soothe your soul that our God keeps His word. He keeps His promises in Jesus, in Christ alone. But we also see in this text that this means that God, the God who is the transcendent one, the one who rules and reigns over the cosmos, this sovereign God who can feel really far away, as far as the closest star in the sky that you see at night, is ever present with us in Jesus. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And perhaps you feel this morning that God would never accept you because of your sin. You know, if we really knew you, we really knew what you thought and how you lived. Perhaps even your presence here this morning, you have just sort of a sense of shame. I could never measure up to all these people around me. Hey, this, it seemed like they have their lives together and my life's a mess. Friend, God in his glory He drew near to us in our mess. He he didn't say, you know, Israel, clean yourself up, obey me, and then I will save you. No, he said, I'll save you, and then I'll clean you up. Friend, there is no one in your life, not not a child, not a grandchild, not an aunt, uncle, cousin, friend, family, neighbor, who has gone down the path of sin who is not redeemable. The incarnation of Christ reveals to us that humanity is redeemable. That Jesus did come and to die the death that we deserve and that we can be saved. His name is Yah. His name is Jesus. His name is... He, he, he can save. Joshua can save because God saves through His Son. J.C. Ryle, if we would have sweet comfort in suffering and trial, we must constantly keep in view our Savior's humanity. He was the man, Christ Jesus, who lay on the bosom of, bosom of Virgin Mary as a little infant and knows the heart of a man. He can be touched with the feelings of infirmities. He has himself experienced Satan's temptations, he has endured hunger. He has shed tears. He has felt pain. We may trust Him unreservedly with our sorrows. He will not despise us. We may pour out our hearts before Him in prayer boldly and keep nothing back. He can sympathize with His people. Friend, when you pray to Jesus, you're praying to a human being who knows what you're suffering. He knows the wiles of the wicked one. He he knows the temptations of Satan. He knows the struggles of the flesh and the weaknesses that all of us face. He knows how to comfort you when you're broken, when you're hurting. We ought never to withhold a prayer from this Christ child who's come Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has existed for all of eternity, past, present, and future, now united with us, has come near to us. Oh friend, trust in this Christ and you too can be saved. You can be freed from all the shame of your sin and truly experience the joy that we all celebrate in this Christmas season. Our God who is separated from us because of our sin has come near to us Through Jesus. Consider this Puritan prayer as we conclude. What shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear Son, begotten, not created. My Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute. His self-emptying, incomprehensible. Isn't it? God would come near. His infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp. How can it be that Christ would save thee Herein wonders of wonders? He came below to rise me above, was born like me that I might become like him. We sing in Hark the Herald. Uh, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Here in his love, when I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Here in his power, when deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them indissoluble together, the uncreated and the created. In him, God has given me so much that heaven. And give no more. Let's pray. What more could you give, God? What more, Father, could you give us even if we had no more answered prayer? You gave us the greatest gift this world has ever known. And though, maybe even some here today reject that gift, say no thank you. Father, as Christians, may we renew our thanksgiving. For this Christ who had come, that you would draw near to us in this weak way, as a child, as a baby, and all of the vulnerability, and all of the weakness, and all of the cries there in that manger. Oh God, there, Emmanuel came to save a people, to save us from our sins. Oh, we believe upon you now, Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray, seal our hearts for your glory, for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.